Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you and to have you with us for worship this morning at WPC. It's also wonderful to be back with you after a week away visiting family. I do hope you're able to join us tonight uh, at 6 p.m. for our outdoor service as we'll be celebrating communion together uh, in our beautiful outdoor sanctuary just out beyond the playground on 4th Street over there. And we'll also be hearing from our middle and senior high youth uh, on their ministry trips they took this summer. So it should be a wonderful uh, worship service and time to celebrate what our, uh, our youth group uh, folks have been up to this summer. Today we return to the lectionary following a summer away from it, a little vacation from it uh, maybe during the Lord's Prayer series. Our first reading was from the theologically dense Romans chapter 12, a chapter that could probably merit its own series on its own. Our second reading finds us at about the halfway point of Matthew's gospel, as we come across Jesus and his disciples at a pivotal moment in the gospel story. I invite you now to listen with open hearts and minds as we encounter God's word together from the 16th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, beginning with the 13th verse. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was hard to believe, but it was just about a year ago that Marie and I purchased our very first home right here in Warrington. Crazy to think I've been here a year, too, right? Now, it is uh, an odd process, simply a complicated process, simply looking for a home on its own, much less all of the other steps that go into purchasing a home. But throughout the process, we kept hearing the same mantra from our realtor, from our family and friends who have been through the process before on what's important when looking for a house. And you all know it, location, location, location. I I know it's a little cliche, but it's a cliche for a good reason because location matters. There's so many things you can change about your home, but typically one of the things you can never change is its location. This made me think that location matters in the gospel, too. This is a detail we often overlook since the geography of the Bible isn't familiar to us. So most of the time when we hear a a town or a region uh, in a Bible reading, we simply gloss over it. But be clear, these locations matter. 
They certainly matter to the original audience of the gospel. Matthew knew this well and used locations and talked about locations very intentionally and strategically. Particularly in our reading today, he is very clear and certain to name just where Jesus and his disciples were when this pivotal conversation takes place. Caesarea Philippi. This was a Roman-occupied city on the very northern boundary of Israel. It's a city named for both Caesar and Herod's son, Philip. But it was formally named after the Greek god Pan, and housed a monstrous shrine to this god of the wilderness. So Matthew's clear to note that this conversation about Jesus' identity, just who he is, and Peter's confession of Jesus' identity, and that all of this takes place in this city that was at the crossroads of both the empire and pagan religion. I think this passage is especially fitting today also as our children are now back in school, and our Sunday school teachers just before worship were preparing for their new program year. In this passage, Jesus is a masterful teacher. He begins this conversation in this significant place by using almost a Socratic-like method, by asking the disciples a simple question. Who do people say that I am? Who does the world say that I am? An interesting question, and the disciples answer with what they had been hearing. Some say you're John the Baptist, or maybe Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Those all seem like fine answers at first. I mean, these guys are some of the giants of Scripture so far, each of which have an impressive role on their own. But there's a problem with this answer. This answer implies that Jesus isn't anything new. Scholar Tom Long here claims that to the popular mind, Jesus is just deja vu. John, Jeremiah, Elijah, whoever. The people have turned Jesus, who is a window into the kingdom of heaven, they have turned him into a mirror. They look at Jesus but only see the reflection of religious ideas from their past. This problem also seems like one our world wrestles with today as well. Long continues by claiming that every age is tempted to transform Jesus into its own image. We see this in the imagination of the world around us when people reduce who Jesus is simply to his moral teachings or ethics. Those are fine descriptions of Jesus, but they certainly aren't the whole picture. And as such, Jesus' identity and God's very kingdom are reduced to our preconceptions. And so Jesus, still in his Socratic teaching style, asks another question to make them dig a little deeper. Who do you say that I am? Now the tables are turned. It's no longer a question about perception, now it's a question about reality. Jesus asks the people closest to him, the very people following him, to tell Jesus who he is to them. Now, good old Peter steps forward and delivers the line he was born to give, saying, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In this little sentence, Peter provides the church with its very first confession, its very first statement of belief. 
But his confession isn't necessarily a new thing. In the very first sentence of Matthew's gospel, the reader will learn that Jesus is the Messiah, which essentially means the Christ, the promised Savior of God's people. Son of the living God is also a, a, a term or a phrase that we had heard throughout the gospel pieced together here. This means that Jesus, is, or Jesus as Son is united in both being and essence, with the God who not only created the world, but is always active and at work in it. We may have seen these words describe Jesus before, but here Peter puts it all together, giving us the fullest picture of Jesus yet in the gospel. But then if you jump to the very end of our passage, you may be perplexed, rightly so, by the secrecy Jesus uh, swears Peter and the disciples to. But at this moment, it seems clear who Jesus is as a Messiah. The Son of the living God has been confessed. But who Jesus really is won't be fully understood until he is crucified and rises again. This is why, in my opinion at least, Jesus tells the disciples not to share this yet. Jesus' true identity as Messiah, Son of the living God, has been glimpsed but not fully realized yet. So at this pivotal moment, at Peter's confession, the conversation abruptly moves from Jesus' identity to the church and Peter's role in the church. At this confession, Jesus blesses Peter, telling him this profession was an act of faith. It wasn't uh, smarts or stature, but God-given faith. He calls him by his nickname, Peter, which means rock, saying essentially, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. This is a very important verse for our Catholic brothers and sisters, as it is their source for understanding the apostolic succession of their popes, beginning with Peter and going all the way to Pope Francis today. But I think for us, we can appreciate this passage as the very first glimpse of Jesus' idea of the church. The Greek word used for church here is ekklesia, and it literally means to call out, to send out. So the church that Jesus is building on the rock of Peter's faithfulness is a community that has been called out to profess who Jesus truly is as Savior and Lord. Like Peter's blessing, the church isn't perfect. One of our confessions, the Barman Declaration, says it best, affirming that the church, at its essence, is a community of pardoned sinners. Yet this community of pardoned sinners has been called out for service in the world. After this, Jesus then says that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This is simply a promise that God will not abandon the church. And because of this promise, all that opposes God's will, that is the gates of Hades, cannot prevail against it. God will be with you, and all that opposes God will not prevail. Next, Jesus tells Peter that he will possess the keys to the kingdom. And now every one of us is thinking about our favorite St. Peter at the pearly gates joke, right? But this isn't exactly what Jesus is talking about here. The keys of the kingdom are understood as the symbol of the church's power and authority on earth. 
In other words, what Jesus is telling Peter and the disciples is this. What the church says and does, how it bears witness to Christ in light of what's going on in the world, these things matter to God. As the church, as those who have been called out, we have been tasked with telling the world who Jesus truly is, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Our God has called us in the church not to be, or, sorry, our God has called us in the church to be witnesses, not bystanders, fully participating in the unfolding of God's kingdom on earth. God provides the church with power and authority to proclaim the gospel and promises to be with us through the Spirit, reminding us that evil cannot prevail against us. Truly important stuff here. With this, we see how the question Jesus asked the disciples is so important. It beckons us to ask ourselves the same questions. Who does the world say that Jesus is? Who do we say that Jesus is? Maybe another way for us to think about this is, what is the world missing about who Jesus truly is? And how do we communicate that? How do we share that? I think our first lesson has something to help us out here. Paul's addressing the Romans, calling for them to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God doesn't want ritual sacrifices. God wants us, all of us, to give of our very selves fully to God's kingdom purposes on earth, witnessing to Christ's love. Embodying God's love, living out God's love, Paul says, is a living sacrifice. That is a sacrifice that never ends. This is our spiritual worship. The word translated as spiritual here in Greek is logikos, from which we get the word logic. So what Paul is telling the Romans is that living out God's love, embodying who Christ is with every action and encounter we have, this is our logical, our reasonable, our practical worship. So who do people say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? As the church, we have been called out to embody to live out the love of God we know in Christ and all that we say and do. We are called to give of our very selves to this task as our way of giving praise, of worshiping the living God. We know that we will be far from perfect in this task, but we are strengthened by our community of faith here and by God's promise of presence, knowing that the forces of evil cannot prevail against us. Friends, may we go and share who Jesus is in a world longing for the hope and love that he brings. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.